going to turn in our Bibles together to Luke chapter 15 this morning. We've been in a series for a while, as, as most of you will know, called Storyteller, and journeying through these amazing stories of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but as we've really engaged deeply with them, they've, they've started a, a new story, and that's what Jesus comes to do. He's, he's the story maker, and his story and his stories uh, start stories within us. Uh, I'm going to come to the last in this series uh, on this from Luke chapter 15. I'm going to pick it up at verse 11. I'll try and keep still for you, James, sorry. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He spent everything. There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms round him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's come back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, <coughs> Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you were always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Don't you just love the words of Jesus? 
love the stories of Jesus. Shall we pray together? Lord Jesus, as we come to this story, for some of us it's a story we've heard many times. Uh, and uh, Lord, uh, often as we open your Bible, we read passages, Lord, of your word that we're so familiar with that they lose their power to shock and surprise and challenge and encourage and comfort us. So, Lord, would you give us fresh eyes today? Lord, might we see something of your heart as you tell us this story afresh today? Might we listen to that living voice that proceeds from the mouth of God by your spirit here? Lord, whether <coughs> this is a new experience for us, whether we're new to this church or any church, or whether, Father, we've been walking with you for a while, whether for some of us today maybe it feels like a while since we've heard from you, would you open our hearts afresh today to the voice of your Spirit, to the word of your Son, and to the call of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I just want to start with a, another quick announcement. I should have said this at the start. Has anybody lost any keys? Do you, I just want to check if everyone's got their keys on them. I'm sorry, nobody's lost any keys, but I thought I'd check anyway. Because is there a worse feeling in the world when you put your hand on your pocket where your keys, you know they were, they were definitely there, and they're not there? You feel for a minute like life itself is going to have to stop, uh, like you're going to have to go into panic mode. Uh, how many people lose their keys regularly? Yeah, my colleague Tim, our youth and schools worker, is forever lending me a key to somewhere in this building or our other building because I just I put my keys down and I don't know where they are. But it's a horrible feeling, isn't it, when you don't know where it was. Some of you are thinking, no, I definitely have got the right keys with me. There's another thing that we lose. Not a day goes by, not a single day goes by in our house without somebody saying, could you, could you call my mobile? Because I don't know where, not a single day, does it? Not a single day goes by where somebody doesn't lose their phone. Anybody here always losing their phone? How many people, let's be honest, feel more panicky when you lose your phone than when you lose your house keys? That says something, doesn't it? That says something. Uh, another thing, apparently this is the third most lost thing. A pen. It always happens right when you need it most, right? When you're on the phone and they get to the important bit. Uh, can you take down my number? Yes, I can take down my number. And you cannot find a pen. I, I was thinking to myself the other day, how many pens have I bought in my life? I mean, it must be a huge number. But we're always, always losing them. What about this one? Glasses. How many people are losing their glasses? Yeah. Now, that's fun, isn't it? To try and find glasses without the thing that helps you find and look for things. That's always fun. Uh, and apparently the fifth most lost thing is this one. The remote control. <laughs> How many people have lost the remote control? <laughs> Keep your hand up. If your marriages and your families are still intact, you're doing well. Because this is, this is stressful when we lose the remote control. What if I can't turn it up or down when I need to or put the program on? Yeah, we're, we're always losing stuff. And it's horrible, isn't it, when you're looking for something because it should be there somewhere. That's the frustration, isn't it? It's got to be in this room or this house somewhere. And what's even more frustrating is when somebody tells you where they think it is and you know you've looked there. And then you go and it's exactly where they said it was, but you know you've looked there. Losing stuff is, is so frustrating. It's a big pain in life. 
Anyone who's a fan of, uh, of The Office might recognize this scene uh, where, um, uh, I can't think of his name now, it's, it's not Brent, is it? Michael answers on a postcard or, or in the YouTube chat or whatever. But anyway, uh, where he comes to the team and he says, right guys, there's something very serious to report. The lost and found box is missing. <laughs> so please don't lose anything until it's found, which I like, I like that. But losing, losing stuff is, is just so frustrating. It's interesting then how we use this word lost in life, isn't it? I don't know how many of you recognize this TV presenter. Uh, I'll be honest, I, I didn't really recognize her from this photo because we're used to seeing her just really chatty and laughing and smiling. But it's Holly Willoughby. And she's written a book called Reflections. It came out just a couple of weeks ago and... In that book, she talks about her life as a TV presenter and who people see her as. And she talks about the pressure that comes with that, to always be posting things that are happy and smiley and to always be that person. And in this book, she talks about losing herself in a personality. It's possible for all of us to do that, isn't it? Not just TV. We've all got a face that we give to the world. We've all got a persona that we project. I lost myself. Huge words. There's another story in the paper only a few weeks ago that was written anonymously by a journalist who is about to take or has now taken a sabbatical. And the reason it's anonymous is because for his family and for the people involved, this is an ongoing situation, ongoing crisis. Uh, he managed to get himself addicted to gambling would spend long nights uh, with his laptop uh, just trying to place more and more money on more and more races, more and more games, just to try and win back what he'd lost. And that addiction had a grip on him and he couldn't stop. Uh, and so to relieve the pressure that he felt and to lift himself when he's feeling so low, he got up to other things at night on his laptop and began relationships with people that a married man should not begin uh, online with others. And this too became an addiction for him. And he talks in that article about losing his way. He didn't set out to car crash his marriage and his job and his family. But somehow he got lost. Lost his way. And then there was another story, really tragic quite recently, uh, of a worship leader. You probably don't recognize uh, the face. You might recognize the name, but you'd certainly recognize some songs that he's written. And during lockdown, being unable to work in a church and serve in that way, he really struggled. Struggled to put it all together, how this could be happening. And he recently wrote a blog saying that he'd, he'd lost his faith. And in that blog, he talks about the fact that he doesn't mind losing his faith. He doesn't feel bad about it. And in the blog was actually trying to encourage others to question and seek and explore. Lost. To lose myself. To lose my way. To lose my faith. Lost. It's, it's a word actually that we tend to use now if we're not using it for something physical. Uh, for the big things in life, don't we? We talk about people losing a battle for something or people even losing their life. You wonder, don't you, in this world of lost things in which we live, how does God feel? 
about the stuff that is lost, about people who've lost themselves, about people who've lost their ways, about people who've, who've lost their faith. How does God feel as he looks at my world and yours and sees it scattered with stuff that's not in its place, it's not where it should be? How does God feel? The story that we've just read comes from Luke chapter 15. It's actually the third of three stories that, that Jesus tells. It's a, a trilogy. and it, it starts that chapter with these words. Uh, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. This is one thing that Jesus' stories always did was to gather crowds. and They gather crowds of all kinds of people. You know, Luke tells us that there are tax collectors. Now, it's easy just to read, you know, skip over that, but, but this is huge back in the day. Uh, for the Jewish people, the fact that they had to pay taxes to a Roman empire was everything that was wrong with the world. It hurt them. Every time they had to do that, it was a reminder that this land wasn't really theirs, that, that they didn't have a king on the throne, that the promises uh, of this promised land seemed so far away. And then there's a situation where some Jewish people are accepting work from the Roman authorities and going to work for the very forces that have brought this about. And of course, for the Jews, this was awful. This was seen as a deep betrayal. These were no longer regarded as sons of Abraham, as part of the covenant. Uh, these were sort of outsiders. And yet, around Jesus, they, they gather. And it's not that Jesus doesn't care about the promised land or the future of the nation or any of those things, and yet they find this welcome. And it's not just them, there's sinners as well, people who publicly others look at and go, sinner, put that label on them straight away. And so there's some grumbling going on, there's some muttering. It's a great word, mutter, isn't it? You've never muttered, have you, about anything great, about anything good. It's always something you want to get out under your breath. There's some muttering about Jesus. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And back in the day, hospitality was the highest form of welcome. You did not eat with people who were beneath you, which is so important. But Jesus is, spends a lot of the Gospels just sat eating with people and people that rabbis, by all rights, would not normally and should not normally be seen with. And so that's the context here, is that people are looking at Jesus and saying, he has no business hanging out with them. If he's going to claim to be a prophet, a holy person, someone who speaks the word of God, someone who carries the power of God, he has no business being with that, that group of people. It, it delegitimizes for them uh, all of Jesus' ministry and all of his work. And in response, Jesus tells them these three stories, these, these parables. And there's one about a sheep. There's one about a coin. And there's one about the sun. And this is how we know that Jesus wasn't a Baptist, because they don't all start with the same letter. <laughs> I mean, you can, if you want to, say that it's about cattle, coins, and kids, which kind of gets you close, or a farmyard, finances, and family. <laughs> That's why you pay me the big bucks. Uh, but there's three stories that, that Jesus tells. So why... These three stories, and why three stories? Well, in these stories, uh, there are some common threads that run right the way through. Uh, two of them are this, that in each story, there is something that is lost. 
Now, straight away, the fact that Jesus uses the word lost says something about what he believes about these people that are gathering around him. Uh, if they were not meant to be there, if they were meant to be somewhere else and they'd come to be with him, they wouldn't be found, they would be trespassing or they would be brought in. The fact that he says lost means that this is their place, this is where they should be, but they're not. And so straight away it challenges our, our, our preconceptions. Also, if you read the first parable, it says suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. It's interesting, isn't it? We often think about this, the story of the lost sheep uh, as this sort of rebellious sheep, this sheep that wanders and, and strays away. But Jesus tells it differently. He says it's the shepherd who feels like he's lost a sheep. How does God feel about people who've lost their way, lost their faith, lost themselves? He feels like somebody who's lost something. And then in each of these stories, there is this bizarre reaction. I don't know if you've thought about this. This shepherd has 100 sheep. Um, we probably miss this point of the story in, in our sort of culture, but he's doing well. 100 sheep. He's doing really, really well. He loses one. So there's 99 somewhere in a field that he leaves to go and find the one. This is bizarre behavior. I mean, shepherds wouldn't risk their investment, wouldn't risk their livelihood over one. He wouldn't leave them unguarded. But there's something about what the shepherd feels about his sheep. They're worth more to him than the income they represent. There's a personal investment. That's why he carries it back on his shoulders. There's a bizarre reaction. There's a woman who has ten coins, drachma in, in the Greek which represents a day's wage. So she has 10 coins, 10 days' wages, and she loses one. Lights a lamp, searches the whole house, finds this one coin, throws a party over one day's wage. A party which conceivably could cost more than the one coin she'd lost. This is not normal behavior. This is bizarre. This, this love that the shepherd has, that this woman has, that the father has, it goes beyond. This is why these stories live on. This is why these stories were shared, because it, it represents something. The love of another kind. You know, it's a little bit like when your kid has that teddy bear that they've hugged and held for years and it's covered with their, you know, their phlegm and their snot and the dirt of the years and it's threadbare and you say to them at some point, should we throw that out now? And they say, no, you can't, I love it. And you look at it and think, after everything we've bought you, that's the thing you want to keep? Well, how much more does the Father look at us with the dirt that stains our lives and the brokenness? and our threadbare faith, and in a way that is above and beyond what we could expect, imagine, or deserve, loves us enough to come looking and enough to find us. So there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property among them. So father 
has an estate, a property, uh, some sort of business that he, that he runs. And he's got two sons. Uh, now, in Jewish thinking, the elder son is going to inherit the father's business. And then other children get lesser shares. So the fact that there were two sons makes this really easy. The elder son will get two-thirds of the father's business, and the younger son will get one-third. Are you with me? Good. You just look blank. Maybe it's the mask. But you look, so two-thirds and, and one-third. The youngest son looks at this situation and thinks, I'm never going to get what the older son's going to get. And so this idea grows in him. I'm going to go to my dad, and I'm going to say, Dad, you know when you die and your inheritance comes to me, well, let's just sort of skip ahead. Let's cut out the middleman. Give me my share now. Can you imagine the hurt that would cause? I just... I want my inheritance and I want to go. I've got places to be. I've got things to do. I want to get out of here. But the father divides the property between them. Those are important words. We'll come back to those words later. He divides the property between them. It's not just the younger son who gets his share. The property is divided. It's like the father is dead now. The older son has his two-thirds now. That's the start of our story. And so the, the youngest son goes off to a distant country, and he starts spending. And he likes what his money buys, so he spends some more. And all we're really told is that he squanders it in wild living. It doesn't take him long uh, to just, just blow the inheritance. And he finds himself in a place when there's famine in the land, and he's in great need. And the only job he can get is feeding pigs. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, you'll know why Jesus picked pigs feeding the dirty, unclean animals. And he is so hungry that Jesus says he considers eating the food he's feeding the pigs. And then Jesus says, but nobody would give him anything. So they don't even let him eat the food he's feeding the pigs. So this is how far he's sunk now. This is how low he's got. And one day he sat there scattering these pods for the pigs to eat with hunger in his stomach. And Jesus chooses these words. When he came to his senses, when a light bulb went on, when the penny dropped, literally in the Greek, interestingly, it's when he came to himself. And he saw himself. And he had to get to rock bottom to see it, but he saw it. He thinks to himself, the servants, my dad employs, don't get treated like this. Maybe they'll give me a job. I certainly can't walk back in, pretend to be the son I was and have the place I had, but maybe, maybe he'll give me a job. And so he begins this long, lonely walk home. And as he's walking, he's, he's crafting this, this speech, sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm not going to pretend it's okay. It's not okay. I'm not going to pretend I can walk back in. I, I can't. But would you make me like one of your servants? And as he's walking on this road, Jesus describes this moment when, still far away, still a long way from the house, he sees somebody running down the road towards him. And there's a moment when the prodigal son goes, 
it's my father running towards me. How does God feel about stuff that's lost? Still a long way from home, running towards him. But when he gets to him, he throws his arms around him. He kisses him. He calls the servants to put a robe around him, to take his ring and to put it on his finger, to take the prize bull, the fatted calf, and to kill it. Because that night they're going to have a hog roast. They're going to have a party to celebrate. Not just them. They're going to invite the whole community to celebrate this, this reconciliation. He says, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. Didn't know where he was. Didn't know what had happened to him. He could have been dead. He was as good as dead in, far, in terms of our relationship. But now he's alive. He's here. He was lost and is found. And so this party is going on, this celebration, more than this kid could have imagined or expected. And it's not just the fatted calf who isn't happy that he's arrived home. Somebody's not at the party who should be. And the elder son who's been out working in the fields hears the music, hears the noise and goes, who's throwing a party for what now? Calls a servant over, says, what, what's this? And they said, oh, your brother's back. He's been found, and your dad's thrown a party. And there's all this anger and bitterness in him. At the start of this story, Jesus says that the father divides the estate between the two sons. So whose prize bull has just been killed? It's the older brother's, isn't it? Who's hosting this party? Who's, who's bankrolling the wine? It's the older brother. He's furious about this. Can't believe that this has been allowed to happen. But the father then comes out and pleads with the older brother. Come in. Come and celebrate. Come and talk to your brother. Come and you know, resume this relationship. Let, let's celebrate together. We had to, had to mark this. We had to celebrate it. And then you see a glimpse into the heart of the older brother. He says, Dad, I've worked hard for you. I've slaved on this farm all my life. And you've not so much given me a young goat so I can party with my friends. Interestingly, in Jesus' day, a goat didn't have much meat on it. It's a small, sort of meager animal, really. I haven't really got much imagination for what the Father's love or lavishness looks like. He never even gave me a... I mean, who of us haven't been disappointed when our parents haven't given us even a young goat so we could party with our friends? He didn't even give me a young goat. And the father says, Son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. Just a side note of commentary. The father in this story is God, just in case you missed that point. <clears throat> and the words that Jesus puts in God's mouth are, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. And all you want is a young goat to party with your friends. We often call this the parable of the lost son, don't we? It's not. 
It's about two sons who are lost. One who's lost in a far-off country, but one who is right there with the Father, sharing everything with the Father and not seeing it, not knowing it, and bitter and angry that he's welcomed his brother back home. That's why Jesus is telling this story. That's why he's telling it now. See, often when we look at these stories, we, we think of it this way, that it's about others, that this story is about people who are lost, and we're, we're the fans, so these stories are, are really for them. But Jesus is telling this story to people who are questioning, can those people be found? Can those people be included? Does Jesus' message even really, really reach them? Why are there three stories? Well, what's interesting is that each story seems to add a layer of interest, a, a layer of detail. And one of the details it adds is this, that there's a, a sheep that gets lost, and the sheep is one in a hundred. And then there's a coin that gets lost, and the coin is one in ten. <coughs> and then there's a son who's lost, and the son is one of two. Who's good at percentages? This is going to be the easiest maths lesson. I've got a statistician, actually. We should have said, run these numbers by you. This is going to be the easiest maths lesson you've ever done. The sheep represents a 1% loss. The coin, a 10% loss. And the sun, a 50% loss. And Jesus is stacking up these stories to say to the people there, do you think... My father loves you like 1%. Do you think maybe you're 1% of his heart? Well, what if you were 10%? Or what if you were 50%? And this older brother has to swallow the fact that the father loves the youngest son just as much as he loves the older son. And see, for all of us, there are places in our lives and, and people that we think it's okay to talk about in ways that we do not talk about most people in our lives. We think it's okay to look at. We think it's okay to treat. And Jesus' question shakes that and, and challenges that. Can you believe that God loves them as much as he loves you? In this story, the older brother is, is deeply hurt by the younger brother. In fact, when the father wants to talk to him, he, the, the father says he was lost and he is found. So something has changed there by the fact that he's come home, but that hasn't changed the fact in the brother's mind. No, he's the one who went off. Spent all of your money with prostitutes. Interesting that he comes out with that word because it appears nowhere else in the story. He's just imagined that somewhere along the way and thrown that in to make it seem worse or get the father more angry. But he's hurt, and that hurt does not allow him, in his mind, to allow the younger brother to escape that chapter of his life. Now, he's the one who went. He's the one who left. But he's home. No, he left. He's here. No, he's dead. He's gone. Cannot move on. And there'll be people in our lives who've hurt us. People who now are, are dead to us. They're gone. Don't think about them. Well, when we do, it's briefly, as quick as we can. People who, if we saw again, would induce that, that gut reaction, that feeling inside. And here's the challenge. 
can we believe that God loves them like he loves me? During the 1904 revival, there was a pastor called Evan Roberts who was used incredibly powerfully. The Spirit fell on him in incredible ways. And over the course of two years, his ministry, his mission, saw over 100,000 people come to faith. And his harshest critics were the church. Who does this kid think he is? What on earth is he doing doing it like that? There's a guy called Mal Pope who's written a musical about the Welsh Revival called Amazing Grace. And the song he puts in the lips of one of these ministers who's so upset and so offended by Evan Roberts' ministry is this, you never threw a party for me. And that's how it feels, isn't it? That's how it feels so often. And all the time the Father is there saying to us, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. Yeah, but the fact that they're here (laughs) makes it feel like you don't know me, you don't love me like you love them. For all of us this morning, this will be landing somewhere different. (coughs) But the challenge of the story is, is simply this. Who is Jesus speaking to in you today? Who's speaking to that older brother? That angry, bitter, small heart. Because he's here to plead with you. Just like he ran towards the younger brother, he comes out of the party. I wish I had the time to to go through with you. Jewish dads did not do this. They did not plead with their kids. This Jewish dad does. He's here pleading. Or is he speaking to the younger spirit, the younger son? in you today? Is he calling you home? One of Jesus' favorite words, it's almost impossible to translate from the Greek, uh, is how he describes the father's reaction to seeing the son. Uh, We have this really nice, neat English translation that the father was filled with compassion. Now, compassion is a great word, but it does not begin to convey what Jesus is saying in this story. We tend to think of compassion as as a heart thing, a peer somewhere. But in the Jewish word, it's a movement of the guts. He feels it. That's my boy, my son. It's here. It's inexplainable why he should feel that. The boy knows he could not ever have imagined that. But that's how God feels. And maybe God just wants to embrace you today and hold you so that you know that's how he feels about you. And for all the reasons that you and I can list that we're not worthy, he loves you and he wants you back. He wants you home. Let's pray together.